Good morning, everyone. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. We're happy to be here together on another Sunday morning. Um, so uh, I'm not sure if you saw, but some of our county guidelines have changed over the last week or so. And uh, so we wanted to let you know, we sent out an email um, inviting people to take a survey, consider how you might want to be involved. We're looking towards small groups and in the relatively near future, it looks like there'll be opportunity for in-person gatherings on Sundays. So if you want to give some feedback, send us a response or uh, fill out that survey on the email. And if you didn't get that email, contact one of us and uh, we'll, we'll be sure you get it. I'm excited for that. Super excited. So I'm curious if you can think of a time in which you were at the right place exactly at the right time. I know as a parent raising our two girls, especially when they were little, there were so many moments like that when they were about to tip over and one of us was right there at the right moment to catch them or that, that glass of milk almost splattered all over the wall, but we were with like those cat-like reflexes, we're able to grab it just at the right time. That, 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 that doesn't, doesn't happen, happen often, no. You know, sometimes Usually the milk goes down. <laughs> yeah. um, but then there's also those cases when we're at the wrong place, exactly at the wrong time. I'm thinking of Rachel a few weeks ago. Um, she was sitting outside and just peacefully sitting outside and being still. And she just happened to be under a power line and there happened to be a bird sitting on the power line. And she happened to get um, pooped on <laughs> right at that moment. And of course, we were just dying laughing because it was hilarious, but she, she didn't love it. it she was, didn't find it as she funny. She didn't find no. it funny. No. The right place at the right time. Today we're going to start a series in the book of Esther. And the story of Esther is the story of a young girl who mm -hmm. finds herself in a fortuitous place in a fortuitous time. So um, there's a little bit of background to this story that is worth knowing as we dive into it. Um, so Israel, once a powerful nation, revered uh, worldwide, uh, had turned their back on God. And uh, as a result, they had lost their sovereignty, lost their nation. Mm -hmm. uh, it began with Babylon as Babylon came and um, defeated the Israelites in war and then uh, took off many Israelites as slaves. And so uh, after Babylon came Persia, and that's where we'll be at in the story of Esther, the King Xerxes and the Persian Empire is ruling. And eventually by the time of Jesus, Rome is mm -hmm. the world power. And so in the Gospels in the New Testament, we read about the Roman government uh, that's over Israel. Um, but today, as we engage the story of Esther, it's the time of the Persian Empire, mm -hmm. and many Israelites are living there in Persia, and or in the Persian Empire, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, there's uh, been a really interesting turn of events just recently in the history of the Israelite nation. Uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, just before the book of Esther, we read about the king allowing some people to go back to Israel. And they begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, but not all of the Jewish people went back at that time. And so es uh, Esther is one of those that stayed there in another nation. So today we're gonna dive into the book of Esther. We'll just cover the first few chapters. The book of Esther starts off talking about King Xerxes. 
and how he gathers all his military leaders and the officials and all the nobles, and he gathers them for 180 days, really long time, with the sole purpose of displaying his great wealth with the sole purpose of just showing them how amazing he is and what he has. King Xerxes was a very prideful man, as we'll see throughout the story. And he just flaunts his great power and his position and his privilege. And so for 180 days, he has all the people that he thinks are the most important in his kingdom right there with him, displaying his great wealth and showing off. And then after the 180 days, because that wasn't quite enough. No, who, who would be satisfied <laughs> with just a 180 day party? Right? Um, he hosts a seven day banquet. And um, this banquet mentioned several times that there was a whole lot of wine at this banquet. Um, From what I read, Xerxes really enjoys his he, wine. He does. Yeah. He really enjoys his wine. And so in the, in the middle of this banquet, or towards the end of this banquet, I should say, um, the story says this, in high spirits from wine, interpret that how you will, but in high spirits from wine, um, King Xerxes calls for Queen Vashti to come, and he wants to display her and, and brag about her and show her off to all his officials. And Queen Vashti at this time was hosting her own party, and so she refuses to come. And so quickly the king is in just enraged, just filled with fury and frustration that she would dare disobey him. And so he quickly deposes um, Queen Vashti. And then in his fury at being disobeyed, he grasps for the power that he feels like he's lost. And he issues a royal decree saying this, that every man should be ruler over his own household. I mean, can you imagine the conversation around the dinner tables at that night? Yeah. Um, I mean, hey, hey dear, did you hear what the king said? <laughs> I mean, I can, I can imagine there's some pretty crazy conversations happening that night. Yeah. So that all played out. And um, in time, uh, he either sobered up or calmed down one or the other. Um, and in chapter two, you start to see a little bit of regret. He, re he realizes, he remembers what she did and what he had done to her. And so instead of mending the relationship, mm -hmm. uh, he begins to search for a new queen a new wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, the process begins by bringing the beautiful and eligible young women mm -hmm. from the region um, to the palace where the uh, slaves attended to them. Um, they were given beauty treatments for one year um, before they would ever meet the queen. Well, one of the, or the king, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, one of the women brought uh, was this young girl named Esther. She was an Israelite, a Jewish mm -hmm. girl, um, but she had never in her life revealed her identity as Jewish. She was brought to uh, the palace where she quickly won the favor of the head servants mm -hmm. and she received uh, the pampering and any food that she wanted and special quarters to live in until eventually she went and she met the king and he was taken by her and he placed a royal crown on her head and Esther became queen. Now, often when we tell this story, it sounds like uh, a fairy tale or some mm -hmm. sort of beauty pageant. Um, but let me just acknowledge that this was not a beautiful or moral or mm -hmm. good thing that's taking place in this moment. Nonetheless, by the end of uh, chapter two, Esther has become queen in Persia. Mm -hmm. 
And Esther had a cousin named Mordecai. And Mordecai was a Jew from uh, Jerusalem who had been carried into exile by the Babylonians. And he was actually the one who raised Esther because Esther was an orphan. And so he raised Esther as his own daughter. And one of the things I love, um, it's just a small little tidbit, but I love how when she became queen, Mordecai would come by the palace and check in on her every day. So she she at least had this parental figure in her life checking in on her. And there's uh, a couple verses at the end of chapter two that tell of this seemingly insignificant event that happens. But spoiler alert, it becomes super significant later in the story as we continue in the weeks to come. But um, in a couple of verses, it describes how Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate and he overhears the officials, two officials, talking about their plans to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and he reveals this plan to Esther. And then Esther takes this information to the king and gives credit to Mordecai for uncovering this plot. And so the assassination attempt it does not happen. It's thwarted. And so it's um, a really interesting little tidbit that we'll come back to. In weeks it's to another come. one of those examples of in the right place at the right time. Exactly. So Mordecai saves the king's life. He doesn't really receive any honor or praise mm-hmm. or anything special yet in the story for having mm-hmm. saved the king's life. Instead, what happens is a man named Haman comes uh, to be second in control in Persia, only under Xerxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Xerxes likes this man a lot and, and gives him a lot of respect and mm-hmm. honor. Um, in fact, it's decreed that people need to kneel before Haman as he passes by, but Mordecai refuses to do so. And so Haman looks into this guy, Mordecai. Who is Mordecai? Finds out he's a Jewish man. And the text says that he wasn't satisfied just to kill Mordecai, but he wanted to destroy all of his people. And uh, so he goes to the king and says, there's these people living in our nation. They have different customs. They don't follow our laws, and we need to wipe them out completely. And Xerxes, kind of true to his character, probably drinking in the moment, is like, yeah, whatever you want. You know, Haman, do do what you want. And he gives him his signet ring. And so he issues a decree that all Jewish people throughout uh, the empire would be killed. Um, and there's this really interesting statement right at the end of that section where it says, um, so King Xerxes and Haman, uh, they sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Can you imagine this moment? Um, yeah, genocide has been proposed, a date set when all of the Jewish people in these kingdoms would be wiped out. And the king and his second in charge sit down to drink more wine, and the nation is bewildered. What is happening and why? That's a lot <laughs> in the story. And we're actually going to stop there in the story of Esther today. And and so we want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I mean, the Jews are in a dire situation. The Jews are in a horrible place right now. Genocide is upon them. Not only has it been planned in advance, but it's been commissioned and legalized Mm -hmm. by the king, by the government, and everything just looks really bleak right now. Yeah. So um, there's an interesting question that comes to mind in times such as this. Like, where is God in all of this? Mm. And that's a really pertinent and interesting question in the book of Esther, because uh, the book of Esther never mentions God. 
go back and check it. You wouldn't, never. you probably wouldn't believe me as I say that, but it never mentions mm -hmm. God. And so some have argued, well, this is a secular book. You know, it doesn't even talk about God. Uh, others have argued it's beautiful poetry. It's, it's beautiful authorship that invites us mm -hmm. to consider what, how are the people of God engaging when they don't immediately see or hear from him, as well as, um, uh, mm -hmm. what, what's the other, um, that God, uh, that God is active and present, um, behind the scenes and, and the, the way the author writes it, it invites us to explore and look deeper. What is God orchestrating mm -hmm. and doing in this moment? You know, when we read scripture, when we read the book of Esther, we have the benefit of being able to read the whole story. Mm -hmm. So we see the huge problem here at the beginning, but we can also just read ahead to what happens and we know what happens. And Esther and Mordecai and the Jews at this time didn't have that benefit. They weren't able to yeah. see. And so it's much harder in the moment to see um, and, and to believe in the moment. So right here, the Jews are in a time of, of huge crisis. And so as we stop here, we want to ask, you know, how, how do we respond in crisis? What, what do we do when we're confronted with a, a huge problem, a huge crisis? And, I, and again, it won't be exactly like this, obviously, but we also experience crisis at time. And so we wanted to take a few minutes to look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, and to, to look at the moments of crisis in his life and to ask the question, how did Jesus respond in those moments? And then next week, we'll get back to Esther and explore how she and Mordecai and others respond. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first stories of Jesus that came to our minds was um, in Matthew is in Matthew four. And it's a story of his temptation after his baptism, before his public ministry. Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so three times Satan deceitfully twists. Um, truth and tries to tempt Jesus to listen to him and to do as he says. And three times Jesus responds with scripture and Jesus chooses to cling to God and chooses to hear God's voice over Satan's voice. And, and I love this because, you know, how do we respond or how did Jesus respond in crisis? He intentionally chose to cling to God and to listen to his voice over the others. Mm -hmm. You know, um, throughout Jesus' ministry, he was confronted by the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. These are both the religious and political leaders of Israel in his time. And uh, they had come to a point where they cared really only for their own gain and benefit. Um, they cared uh, also for religion, uh, but could, had really lost sight of God and the purpose mm -hmm. of what God was doing in and through them and the people of Israel. And uh, so when Jesus uh, saw these people that were corrupt and yet speaking in the, you know, in the name of God, um, he took action. 
He named what was wrong and he took action. Mm -hmm. There's a story where he enters a temple and they're selling animals or sacrifices at exorbitant rates and they are the money changers are robbing the people that have come from far away to offer sacrifices. And Jesus takes and he turns over the tables. He throws them over and he says, this is to be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And so Jesus, throughout his ministry, we see him both speaking against uh, that which is wrong, naming what was wrong, Mm -hmm. as well as taking action. There's another story in a time of crisis when Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus has died. And his Lazarus' sisters and his family and his friends are in mourning. They're weeping, they're grieving, and Jesus knows this. And so Jesus chooses to draw close to the suffering. He chooses to draw close to his friends. And there's this verse in, in John 11 that describes when Jesus saw Mary crying and weeping, that he was deeply moved and he was troubled and Jesus wept. He, he wept. Did you know that's the shortest verse in the Bible? It, it actually is. Yeah. <laughs> it's also the very first verse I memorized for that reason. That, that's a good place to start. <laughs> if you're thinking about memorizing scripture and want to keep it easy on the first one. Yeah, no, but it's a beautiful <laughs> verse also. Yes, because, you know, it's significant that he wept with them because mm-hmm. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he chose instead to mourn with them, to draw into community and to lament with them, to experience the pain of that moment. We don't often use the the term lament, but it's this expression of sorrow and grief and regret. And it's it's the language of pain and Mm -hmm. suffering. And it recognizes that we, we have pain and suffering and it cries out. It goes to the next step and it cries out for healing and wholeness and justice. And in this time of crisis, Jesus drew close to community and he lamented with his friends. Yeah. And speaking of that was the death of Lazarus, but soon he'll be confronted with his own impending death, with his crucifixion. And the way he responds is beautiful. First, he finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and he steps away from his uh, disciples, his closest followers, to pray. And he prays to God, take this from me. I, I, I don't want to go through this, but your will be done above anything that I desire, right? Facing his impending death, he's able to say, God, this is not what I desire, but what you will is most important. And then shortly after, he comes uh, back out to his followers and a crowd comes to arrest Jesus. And Peter, one of his apostles, pulls a sword and begins to fight. And Jesus Mm -hmm. stops him, heals the man that he had injured. And he says, we're not gonna that's not my kingdom this is not how this works so even if facing his own impending death he's able to take a prayerful and a peaceful posture so looking at how jesus responds to crisis uh, we want to ask ourselves how do we respond in crisis what what do we do um maybe we find ourselves in denial or we find ourselves trying to distract ourselves from what's going on, or maybe we lash out against others or against ourselves or against God. Um, Sometimes we really struggle in times of trouble, in times of pain and crisis to handle, to respond 
appropriately in ways that are healthy in ways that are productive yeah so we lean into the way of jesus as we have explored the story of esther and find them in a time of crisis um, we explore the character of jesus and we lean into his ways saying that in times of crisis like the crises we're facing as a nation as a community as the world right now we cling to god and his truth in difficult times we name what is wrong and we draw close in trusted community to pray and lament. And we take action for God's mission, God's good purposes in this world. And we're going to talk more about taking action next week. You know, this week, um, I want to leave us with this benediction. May we cling to God and hear his voice in times of struggle and crisis. May we learn to come together as a community, not only to rejoice, but also to lament together. And may we know the Holy Spirit as our sustainer, our comforter, and our guide in times of trouble. Yeah, let's pray together. Mm-hmm. God, thank you for the day. Thank you for a time we can look into your word for the story of Esther. Um, and uh, God, today as we kind of leave it in this place of crisis and hurt, Um, God, will you open our eyes to the things happening around us here and today? Uh, God, will you uh, let us know your will in this time? Mm -hmm. Help us to be a people that leans into your way, into your truth, that clings to you. Um, God, help us to see what is Mm -hmm. wrong or broken in this world. Uh, Help us to take action um, as we draw close in community. Um, God, thank you. Uh, for Jesus and the hope that is found in him, even in crisis. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So each week we try to leave you with a worship song that that speaks to the message or has spoken to us this week. And so this week uh, we wanted to share with you the song Trust by Hillsong, Young and Free. And here are the lyrics that just really caught my attention this week. Uh, The song says, I know that you, God, are for me when everything's against me. And so I put my hope in you, Jesus, I will trust in you. When everything feels like it's against me, God, I know that you are for me. Yeah. All right, friends. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Have a great day and have a great week.